This is Carrie D. Welcome to the Coffee with Carrie Homeschool Podcast. Join me every Thursday for some much needed encouragement, coffee, and conversation. It's my prayer this podcast will help you homeschool one step at a time, one day at a time, and one cup of coffee at a time. Hey, if you're blessed each week by our podcast, Coffee with Carrie, then make sure you check out my book, Just Breathe and Take a Sip of Coffee Homeschool and Step with God. And then share our podcast with some of your homeschooling friends who might need a little encouragement too. You can also find me at Instagram at Coffee with Carrie Consultant or at our website, coffeewithcarrie.org. So stick around, pour yourself a cup of coffee, put your feet up, and take a little coffee break with me. I think, no, I know, you're going to be encouraged. <laughs> This week in part one of Ask Me Anything, we'll be talking about homeschooling, homeschooling super squirmy and active kids, organizational skills, sports in high school, getting your husbands involved, and a few other goodies. We'll be tackling things like how to fit it all in, how to deal with outside criticism about your homeschooling, how to get connected and find friends, especially during covid faith questions, and a few other questions that are still coming in. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to start with this question from Jenny in California, because it's a question I get all of the time from new and veteran homeschooling moms. How do you organize your day and all of your time? It's hard being mom, teacher, personal assistant, nurse, all of the above. Jenny, This is such an awesome and loaded question. (laughs) There are tons of great ideas for getting and staying organized, but I think there are six things that really help. One, make sure you set academic or curriculum goals at the beginning of each year. Two, create a family calendar for each month. Three, try to plan your weekly lessons and activities on Friday. Four, learn as much as you can as a family. Five, do some meal prep for the week or for the month, and six, train those habits and chores. Okay, so first things first, spend time each summer praying over each child, their strengths, their needs, their progress over the past year, and what you feel they need to work on in the next year. Now, Jenny, keep it simple and keep it realistic. For example, your fourth grade son might be quote unquote behind in reading, on track in math, is a horrible speller, hates to write, but loves to draw and do karate. So your yearly simple goals might be for him, one, master phonetic rules that will help improve his reading and spelling. Two, learn how to write a well-organized paragraph. Three, complete two pages of math a day. Four, read aloud a science or history picture book to his younger sister each week. Five, sign him up for an official art lesson. And six, maybe advance a few belts in karate. The goals are specific enough to help you plan, but not so unrealistic you fail before the school year even starts. Then research and pray over curriculum and activities, games, or classes you could use to help your son achieve these academic goals. 
Brainstorm which subjects or topics you can learn as a family that meet his goals as well as the goals of the other kiddos at the same time. For example, pick one history and one science topic that you can study together as a family the whole year. Then create a family calendar, use it, and refer to it often. I color-coded mine for each child, but you don't have to do that. At the beginning of each year, write in your calendar any field trips, family vacations, weekly classes, birthday celebrations, things like that that you know your family will do during the year. We happen to use an app called Cozy. My older kids and my hubby can see our calendar from their phone at any time, and they're notified when something changes. Then, when you add events, don't forget to put them on the calendar too. I had one family rule to help keep me sane and to keep my gray hairs at bay. It was this. I guarded our mornings, we did outside classes in the afternoon, and I tried to limit all day out of the house activities to only once a week. For example, our Wednesday co-op classes are every Wednesday, so we try to remain home the other four days of the week. Field trips are the exception, but try not to schedule a field trip every week unless it's your goal that year to be more experiential in your learning or to do nature studies once a week. Then, don't save your weekly lesson planning for Sunday night or Monday morning. You'll feel rushed and behind before the week even starts. And I say planning loosely. You don't have to be dogmatic about your lesson plans, and they don't have to be formal either. You're basically writing the specific things you want to do during the week as a family and with each child. Consult your calendar while planning. If you know you have a field trip on Friday, don't try to cram five days worth of schoolwork in four days. Friday's field trip is a learning day. So plan a four-day school week instead and be flexible. If you don't get everything done you wanted to during the week, just roll it over into the next week. Don't double up on schoolwork the next week. Everyone will be rushed and stressed. So a sample weekly plan might look like this. Your family stuff. This week we will read aloud four chapters from Cheaper by the Dozen, or at least try to read a chapter a day. Finish those nature journal entries that we were supposed to finish last week. We have a field trip on Friday and color and label the Europe map. Now my son's plans, his might be math lessons 23 to 26, work on his how-to paragraph, do lessons 12 and 13 and all about reading and spelling. And my daughter's lessons might be do her homework for biology class and start the research and outline for her biology research paper, do math lessons 34 to 36, and finish reading Scarlet Letter so we can talk about it. Another great tip is to try to meal prep as much as possible for the week. Plan out what you will cook for dinner and then cook and freeze in advance whatever you can. Make sure you have at least one crockpot day <laughs> and one leftover day. An attempt to only go to the grocery once a week. This is huge. If you forget something, try to make do with whatever you have already in your pantry and just be creative. The extra trips to the grocery eat up your errand time. We didn't have a particular errand day like some of my friends. Personally, I need to get out of the house at least once a day, so I saved my errands for later in the afternoon when we all needed a break or when my kids were in different classes or activities. 
And then finally, spend time training habits and divvying up the chores. Homeschooling is a family affair. Everyone needs to chip in and do their own part, even the little guys. So give each child a particular chore for the week or rotate the chores. I personally found it easier to give each child the same chore for the week or for the entire month so they could get really good at it. And I didn't have the constant headache of, now whose turn is it today to empty the dishwasher? We also had a deep cleaning day. Hey, it's called home ec, right? We would scrub the toilets, sinks, clean the microwaves, refrigerator shelves and drawers, and sometimes even the windows. Also, try not to redo what your little kiddos or tweens have done. They will notice and figure Why bother doing their best if it isn't good enough for mom and you're just going to come right behind them and redo it anyway? Gently show them a few tips each week until the dishes get cleaner and the sinks become sparkly white. And also divvy up the breakfast and lunch cooking. Once or twice a week, give each child a lunch to prepare. Even your five-year-olds can make a PB&J sandwich. Show them how to clean up as they go and then assign another child to clean up after lunch. Trust me, your future son or daughter-in-law will love you because by the time your child is a teen, they not only know how to make the basics like boil rice and cook pasta, but they can prep and cook delicious meals and then they clean up after themselves. I'm sure you already have some tricks that you use too, but these are just six of my organizational must-dos. Okay, our second question comes from Virginia in Lancaster, California. How do you get your child, who's almost five, to sit still, even if it's just for reading time? (laughs) I'm sorry, Virginia. I just had to chuckle a little bit when I read this question, because I was flooded with tons of memories of my own son doing exactly the same thing. While now on the other side of this, he's now 18, and well, he's still constantly moving, we are no longer have this fun issue to deal with every day like you do. Okay, so first of all, keep in mind, he's only four, almost five, and he's a boy, and he's been cooped up due to the Rona. We're talking lots of reasons why he has ants in his pants. And it's natural for kids to be antsy. It just comes with the territory. So first, try to use his age, natural inclination, and extra energy in your lessons. One of the blessings of being home is allowing our kids to learn naturally in the way God created them. And as homeschoolers, we can allow them to learn without the restrictions of sitting still all day long. Kids, especially boys, learn best when they're moving, so use that to help them learn. Then try to accept more and expect less, at least at this age. If you're trying to train good habits of sitting still at appropriate times, like while in church or, yes, during a lesson or two, then make sure you're not expecting him to sit still for an amount of time that's just not doable for him yet. Then, think about what is your definition of sitting still? I love that you said in your question you have him jump on the trampoline when you do flashcards with him. That's awesome. So let him jump, throw a ball, whatever it is, if it helps him to concentrate. He certainly would not be able to do that in a classroom. And I'm sure you already do this, but let him do something quietly while you read. 
Now, get a box of special items he can play with only during read-aloud time, and there are items or toys that he loves. When you sit down to read a book or read something you're learning about in history or science, if he doesn't particularly like to look at the pictures in the book with you, then have a box of items for him to play with while you read. Now, I also have several different boxes that I rotate. This way, the same toys are not brought out every day during read-aloud time. Otherwise, they won't really be treats or anything special. Now, pick toys or items that keep his hands occupied. For some reason, moving the hands and feet help active kids and adults concentrate more. Now, in one box, have some really cool Lego pieces or a kit that he's working on. In another box, have those really cool magnetic blocks. They're so fun and colorful, and they now even have a box of magnetic blocks that can be used to make large marble runs. In another box, put slime or Play-Doh. You can make homemade slime of different colors or even scented Play-Doh. And then include cookie cutters in the box, too. In another box, put some fun drawing and coloring materials in it. Then as he gets older, you can have him do other handiwork during read-aloud time, like needlework or whittling. Bring out a puzzle to work on during read-aloud time. Or get some tangrams or pentominoes to work on. Or a Rubik's Cube puzzle to solve while you read. Hey, even let him play Jenga by himself. The idea is to find some things that keep his hands busy, which will help keep his body still. Now, another idea for the desperate is to read to him while he's taking a bath, or while he's eating lunch or breakfast, or even better, save read-aloud time for bedtime. When he's in the bath, he's contained and busy. When he's eating, both his hands and mouth are occupied, so you have his undivided attention. And depending on your bedtime ritual, when he's in bed, he's tired and relaxed, so he's all yours. For other subjects, try the 2020 schedule, or in your son's case, since he's so little, try the 15, 15, 15 schedule. Do 15 minutes of a lesson, 15 minutes of games or activities, and then a 15-minute break. Then come back and start all over again. Do a lot of dictation and narration with him. Don't expect him to write a lot. Do lots of activities and schoolwork outside with chalk and with running, and when it's hot, with lots of water. On the hot days, we used to use squirt guns in our ABC lessons. I would write out different letters with chalk on the driveway, and then I would give the kids a word that started with the letter or gave them a sound, and then they would use their squirt guns to shoot the correct letter. Eventually, it always turned into a water fight, but hey, it worked. Play lawn bowling. Put letters, words, or letters on plastic bottles and roll balls to knock them down. Shoot hoops, or you can use hula hoops for just about anything. Just remember, Virginia, he's four, almost five, so it will be tough to keep him still. He's naturally squirmy, so lower your expectations, take more breaks, and teach in shorter spurts. And keep in mind, he's learning way more as he plays, explores, and creates than he is in the 15-minute lessons. So take heart. All right, our next question comes from Laura in the Bay Area. How can homeschoolers get eligibility status for college? Laura, <laughs> make sure you listen to Coffee with Carrie podcasts in a few weeks. I'll be doing a whole episode on how homeschool athletes can play sports in high school and not only get co- 
not only get into college, but receive sports scholarships and not get redshirted their freshman year. But let me give you a few suggestions right now. Get very familiar now with the NCAA homeschool requirements and with the NAIA eligibility guidelines. Also keep in mind, if your student is enrolled in a charter school, he or she is not considered a homeschooler. Your son or daughter will have the same exact requirements as a public or public private school athlete, and they are very different requirements. If you homeschool through a PSP or on your own, then go to the NCAA website and download their homeschool packet. You will need to fill in forms for every single high school subject or course your student has completed since freshman year. (laughs) And these forms will be needed to deem those courses appropriate and approved. It is easy, but it is time consuming. NCAA also lists exactly what academic courses your student needs to complete in high school, so make sure you plan ahead and include all of those NCAA-approved subjects in your high school plan. Now, if your athlete is a football player, it will be a little harder to play in high school and get scouted, but if your athlete plays sports like baseball, tennis, soccer, basketball, swimming, things like that, then he or she can play club sports. They do not need to worry about playing on a traditional high school team. Your student will also need to be proactive when it comes to contacting coaches and using certain apps to help them get noticed. So Laura, it is doable. Your teen will do all of the hard work, but you will need to do all of the paperwork. And make sure you listen to Coffee with Carrie podcast in a few weeks. I will certainly go into much more detail about the process and give suggestions on different avenues your athlete can take in high school while still homeschooling. Our next question comes from Terry in Louisiana. Hey, girl, I wish I knew from what part of Louisiana you're from. I grew up in Metairie, right outside of New Orleans. Okay, so Terry's question is a good one. What does your husband do to help with the homeschooling? Well, first, make sure your husband is comfortable helping. My husband always tells people when he's asked this question, he says, by the grace of God, he works full time so I can stay home and do all of the homeschooling. Some dads want to be more hands-on and more involved in the teaching, but some don't. So don't push your husband to do more than he feels comfortable doing. With that said, though, definitely get your hubby involved with the planning, no matter how much of the teaching he wants to do or not do. He knows your kids just as well as you do, and our husbands tend to be a bit more pragmatic (laughs) and tougher than we are. I tend to go a little easier on certain subjects because I know a child struggles in a particular area, but my husband is great at reminding me it's okay to push them a little harder. He also has fresh ideas on how to handle trouble spots, and he keeps my binge spending from getting out of control when I feel like I'm failing as a homeschooling mom. So ask him what he wants the kids to learn each year. What life skills does he want them to concentrate on? What heart issues or character issues does he feel they need to work on? Have your hubby be in charge of the family read-aloud time or the family devotions, or maybe even both. If your hubby has a certain skill he's good at or an academic subject he excels in, 
Have him teach that skill to your kids or help one or all the kids in that academic subject. Dads tend to be the fun teacher, so capitalize on that too. And as homeschooling moms, we need a break each week. So have your husbands take the kids out every Saturday morning for a hike or to play at the park or just to run errands. This way you have a few hours to yourself at least once a week. And single mamas, don't worry. Find those male mentors in your child's life. They may not be able to help you in the day-to-day teaching, but they can help you tutor your son in math or give advice to your daughter or teach a certain skill set or just to spend time praying with them. Just make sure both you and your husband pray together over the school year and over any problems that arise during the year. The hardest part for me (laughs) was learning how to balance what I needed my hubby to do and how I wanted him to help with what he felt comfortable doing and what he physically had time to help me with. Now, the next question is from Susan in California, and it's something our family had to deal with the entire time we homeschooled. So here goes. How do you win over in-laws and public school friends? Susan, this is an excellent question, and I hope I do it justice. First, don't expect to win over anybody. (laughs) We homeschool because we feel God is calling us to do it. And we're doing it to give honor and glory to God, not to get praises or acceptance from the outside world. Our goal is to please God, not man. So first, as hard as it is, try to flip your perspective. It would be awesome if everyone was on board and loved that you were homeschooling. But in reality, we will always face opposition and sadly, I think it's only going to get worse after COVID. Okay, so now that I've asked you to do what's almost impossible, you know, not worry about what other people think, let's talk practical ways to sway your family members and disapproving friends. So first, if the grandparents or in-laws or the favorite auntie disapproves, if they live nearby, elicit their help in your homeschooling. I know, crazy, right? But trust me, it works. Let's say your mother-in-law has beautiful handwriting. Ask her to work with your kiddos once a week with their cursive. Grandma will love the extra time spent with the grandkids. It isn't overly academic, so you don't have to worry about, you know, getting behind and other things or worry about grandma teaching them something you don't want her to teach them. And it gives you a little extra time for laundry or errands or working with your toddler. Or reverse that. Ask grandma if she would like to hang out with your toddler once a week for a special play date. Eventually, grandma will see the fruits of your labor and will witness just how much your kiddos are learning and how much they're thriving as she participates in part of their schoolwork. Second, don't argue. Try not to prove your point that homeschooling is awesome every time it comes up. We know it is, but we're not going to convince everybody. And remember that most family members just want what's best for your kids. And most opponents only take offense because indirectly, they know that by you choosing to homeschool, you're kind of saying their choice to not homeschool is a bad one. All right, so third... 
the biggest complaint, especially now after COVID, is that they won't learn how to get along with other kids, or they won't learn how to socialize with others. So invite the naysayers in your family on field trips with your co-op. Invite them to your co-op's weekly classes. They will see very quickly your kids in action, and they will be amazed at just how many normal homeschooling kids there are. They'll probably even be impressed by how mature and polite homeschooling kids are. Then send them photos of your kids having fun at a park day or while on a play date. And don't make it so obvious by sending them a text that says, see, they know how to play with others. (laughs) Just send them a super cute photo of your daughter with her best bud with a text like, I thought you would love this photo of Francesca. And finally, teach your kids and let God do the rest. My mother-in-law finally came around after a few years, but my mom never fully embraced the idea of homeschooling. And you know, it's okay. You do what God is calling you to do and let God work on their hearts. Now, Amy from Texas asks, I don't feel like we're doing enough. What am I doing wrong or what am I missing out on? Well, first, hey, Amy, I have so many friends who live in Texas, and I can't wait to come visit the Lone Star State this summer. By the way, I want to move to Texas, too. (laughs) Okay, so girl, let me just tell you this one thing. You are doing enough. You, my friend, are enough. God designed the home and family in such a way that parents are the child's first and best teacher. No one knows your child like you do. No one loves your child like you do, and no one is more invested in helping your child succeed like you are. And these are credentials that no public school teacher will ever have. Besides, if God thinks we're good enough to teach our own children, then who are we to disagree? Now, if you're a first-time homeschooler, you come with some baggage like the rest of us. (laughs) Most of us were taught in a traditional school setting for 12 plus years. We have certain picture of how school is supposed to look like, and we don't really know any better or any different. So when we come home, we tend to model our homeschool day after what we experienced. And I know from experience, if you do that, you know, model your homeschool day after what you experienced in school, then you will definitely feel like you're not doing enough. But keep in mind, homeschoolers we can get way more done at home with our kids in just a few hours. It takes a trained school teacher with 30 plus kids in a class to do the same amount of work in eight hours. Your day won't look like a traditional school, and it shouldn't. You've been given the gift of time as a homeschooler. K through second grade, well, they can do all of their schoolwork in an hour to an hour and a half tops. And third through seventh graders, they can be done with all their schoolwork by lunchtime. And high schoolers can be done in three to three and a half hours, depending on what their coursework looks like for the year. Just keep it simple. God designed us to be learning machines. Kids are curious by nature and have an innate desire to learn. Our jobs is not to squash that desire, but to build on it and feed it. If you stick to the three R's in the early years, then you're doing enough. Do the humanities and the arts for fun if you have time or if your kids are interested. And science is easy to add because kids love all things creation. Then in the middle school years, 
hone those three R's and use them to learn the humanities and arts. Then in high school, that's where you dig deeper into everything. This is really where the hardcore learning takes place. The early years are the training ground and the time to whet their appetites for different things. But then in high school, that's when you dig in or catch up if necessary. And Amy, they're not missing out on anything. First, keep in mind, public school kids never finish an entire textbook every year. There are always concepts in math and science and history and grammar that public school teachers never get to because they run out of time too. And also, state standards are very arbitrary. What Texas requires in each grade level is somewhat different than what California requires. So when my friends moved to Texas last year, their fourth grader may have been behind, in quotes, in science or history because they didn't learn the same things in fourth grade that their counterpart friends in Texas did. But my California friends, they were, quote unquote, ahead in other areas because they learned some things in fourth grade here in California that Texas standards didn't require until later on. So it looked like they were ahead in some areas. Your kiddos aren't behind. They're learning, and they're learning a lot. They just might be learning different things at different times than their traditional school counterparts. And they're probably learning things much more in depth, too. Let's just say you decide to slow down in math to really grasp fractions. It may look like your daughter is behind in math to the outside world, but she's really learning way more than the average fifth grader who skips from one fraction lesson to the next without actually understanding any of it. Let's say you decide to spend a whole month on bugs because your son is really into it. It may look like he's getting behind in science to your public school friends, but he really isn't. He's learning way more than what the fourth grade standards say he needs to learn, and it will all stick with him because he's motivated to learn it all. And let's just say your family takes a week off to travel to Washington, D.C. for a family vacation. Your kids won't get behind that week. They're actually learning firsthand about our country's history and government system. So your kids are learning enough, and you, Amy, are doing enough. Rest in that assurance. All right. This next question comes from Teresa in San Diego, and it's a tough one especially during COVID. Her question says, we can't seem to get connected with anyone. My kids are lonely and COVID is only making it worse. Yeah, I totally feel you, Teresa. But even before COVID, homeschooling moms, we just have to be intentional when it comes to friends. If you have a large family, the what I call the dry seasons, they aren't as hard since there are lots of natural playmates already living in the home. But every child, just like us mamas, crave a friend, a soulmate, a buddy that we can share our hearts with, you know, who really get us, and who like to do some of the same things we do. It's hard when your daughter is the only child, or in a sea of brothers, or vice versa, or if your, child, or if your son is the oldest and most of his siblings are much younger than he is. And then when they hit the middle school age and sometimes into high school, they really want a friend or a group of friends that they can count on and hang out with. Homeschooling doesn't make it worse or harder, 
We just need to be a little bit more creative about it. In traditional school, kids have a built-in social hour. It's just part of their day. But then they don't have time after school to just be with friends and to just hang out because they're always bombarded with so much homework. Homeschoolers have more free time to explore the things they love, more free time to build relationships with their siblings, and yes, they have more free time to hang out with friends. The tricky part sometimes is finding that special friend or that group of like-minded friends. Well, my daughter never had this problem since she met her BFF for life at age five. But her best friend wasn't homeschooled, so her mom and I had to be intentional for 12 years (laughs) about making sure the girls spent time together each week. They had a standing play date every Friday afternoon until high school hit, and then any extracurricular classes that they could do together, they did, from dance to musical theater to choir. Now, my son, who's an extrovert, never has a hard time making friends, but it was hard for him to find a few really close friends who liked the same things he did. But once he found those peeps, I made sure that they were over as much as possible to play, to hang out, to eat pizza, whatever. But you know, in those dry seasons that my son had, that was a great time for my son and I to really get closer. Now, did I play pitch and catch with him in the yard every day? Well, Probably not as much as I should have, but we did do a lot of other things together that he loved. So take advantage of those dry seasons to build your relationship with that one child or to encourage siblings to build their relationships together. So how do you find those friends is the next question. Well, one, join a homeschool group and get involved. Participate in that group as much as you can. Go to every park day, go on field trips with them, attend the mom night outs, immerse yourself in that group. If you really participate and you and your kids aren't clicking with anyone by February or March, then maybe the group just isn't the right fit for you. We had to join several groups before we found our peeps. And then we eventually started our own co-op. Now with COVID, You may not be able to participate in as many activities as you would like to, so it might take a little longer for your kids to find a few friends. But don't leave the group until you have wholeheartedly participated. But here's the thing. If it isn't working out, then just look for another group to join. It's really okay. That's why there's so many homeschool groups out there. There are all different with different kinds of families who homeschool in different ways. If the group is too conservative or too liberal for you, then just look for another one. If most of the families homeschool in a way that's different from the way you do it, then join another group that has the same kinds of ideas and activities. You will find a better fit. Then second, take a few outside classes on a consistent basis. And what I mean is take a class that meets once a week with the same students in the class. This way, your son or daughter will have an opportunity to meet five to maybe 15 new kids their age and have a whole semester or a whole year to get to know them. The group Wild and Free has nature-loving groups all over the U.S. And Classical Conversations has weekly classes around the world. Then, do your youth group at your church 
and put your kids in extracurricular activities too. Perhaps their best friend won't be a homeschool friend, but a friend from church or a friend from dance. And lastly, if you don't feel comfortable meeting in large groups right now, it's still safe to meet in very small groups with lots of social distancing. Start your own book club with your daughter and two other girls that she may know. Do science experiments in the park with your son and one or two of his friends. Set up one-on-one playdates for your little ones in your backyard. Just try to be consistent and intentional whatever you decide to do. Just keep in mind you will find your peeps. God will bring the perfect friend into your child's life in his timing. You just have to have the courage to leave a group if it isn't working to try a new one. And you have to have the patience to wait for God's perfect pick for your child. Okay, I love this next question from Christy in Tennessee. Can we really take several months or a whole year off? Why, yes, Christy. Yes, you can. (laughs) First, there are lots of reasons you might want or need to take an extended time off of formal school. Sometimes a family needs to heal after a death in the family or a divorce. Sometimes a family needs extra time to adapt to grandma moving in or that new baby joining the family. Sometimes a family needs some extra space after a big move or a family member is recovering from a long-term sickness. Sometimes a family or a child needs to take a few months off when they transition from traditional school to homeschooling. I mean, it's a big adjustment. You can't expect to leave public school on Friday afternoon and jump right into homeschooling on Monday morning. It's just different. And whether your child wanted to homeschool or it was your idea or you had to start homeschooling because of COVID, your child needs time to adjust to the new normal, time to get used to all the extra time on his hands, and time to adjust to not having some of the things he had before. But whatever the reason is, it's really okay. Are your kids truant if they don't open up a textbook for a month? Nope. Are your teens a high school dropout if he doesn't attend one formal outside class for a year? Nope. Are your kids laying around doing nothing and learning nothing if they take a Sabbath month or even a Sabbath year off? Nope. They're learning and you're teaching, but just in a very different way. Your son might be a very young or immature first grader. Can you take off a whole year of formal lessons to give him a chance to mature and grow and catch up emotionally, physically, and mentally? Sure. Why not? It may seem like they aren't learning anything because you aren't doing formal math or spelling lessons with them, but they are learning. In a natural and organic way, they're learning to count, compute, measure, and problem solve every day when they play games or help you cook or work in the garden or build with their Legos. They're learning to critically think and analyze literature when you read aloud to them, when you talk about the books, and then when they read on their own. They're learning tons of science and history when they watch documentaries or read books about things of interest, listen to the news or experiment in the yard, and yes, when they go on different field trips. Their day is still structured because kids do thrive with some predictability, but their days and weeks and maybe even months are not filled with filling in workbook pages. A Sabbath month might look like this. They catch up on sleep, so it's okay if they sleep into eight or nine. You eat breakfast together while doing morning devotions. You get your chores done. 
You read a book together or listen to one on Audible and you talk about it. You're playing board games and card games and go ahead and throw in some math games if you're feeling guilty about taking the month off. Write something every day. Nothing fancy. Just make lists or birthday cards or write a Bible verse, whatever. Then we're going to play outside or go for walks, do some arts and crafts, listen to some music, practice an instrument, do errands together, especially grocery shopping because there's tons of math there. Go to the library to pick out some books for the month or the week, cook and bake together, do puzzles and play with Legos, build things, make things, learn a new skill or work on one you already know like knitting or gardening or painting. If you can, visit grandparents and do some service together. Bring meals to friends, make homemade cards to send to families. If things are open, go to the zoo and museums and aquariums and attend your homeschool's park days and field trips. You're basically just doing life together, but at a slower pace. So what might a Sabbath year look like? Well, much like a Sabbath month, but you might be doing more errands or service, depending on why you're taking the sabbatical. Then you might want to pick a topic to dig into during the year, like astronomy or horses, or in my son's case, baseball. Let's say your family picks astronomy. You're going to do all the things I just mentioned earlier in a Sabbath month. But then you might be a little bit more intentional about doing activities related to astronomy and stargazing. Be more intentional about picking up books at the library that have to do with planets and space travel. Be more intentional about going on field trips that have to do with space. Pick movies and books and documentaries to watch and read that have to do with astronomy. During your Sabbath year, you aren't pushing how to read and how to do decimals, but as you read together, your kids are getting informal reading and comprehension lessons. And as you learn about space travel, they're getting informal math lessons on very large numbers. You mention things, but you don't push, you don't drill, and you don't turn it into a formal lesson with workbooks. Well, unless your son likes worksheets and coloring pages. Remember, there's a reason you decided to take a break. Then during a Sabbath year, be intentional about putting your kids in a few activities they really enjoy. If you do your co-op's weekly classes, don't make, them, don't make him or her do the academic classes. Pick for your son the PE or the art classes, or have your daughter do the knitting and music classes. This way they won't have any homework per se. And use your co-op day as a day of enrichment and fellowship, not as a day to catch up on the academics that you aren't doing formally at home. As they take a Sabbath year, observe your kiddos. What are they naturally drawn to? What are they naturally good at? What grabs their attention? What activities excite them? Do they perk up when you read to them or do they prefer to read alone? Do they have to move around a lot when you're telling a story? Do they like to type more than write in journals? Just start gathering all this information and use it when you start to plan the next school year. One Sabbath year, I thought for sure my son was going to be way behind in math. But to my surprise, when we started formal math lessons the following year, he not only moved at a quicker pace, but he finally understood most of the concepts that eluded him the year before. His brain just needed a chance to rest, to catch up, and to process everything he had already learned. Not only was he not behind in math that year, but he actually jumped a grade level that year too. If you're coming home to homeschool for the first time, I highly recommend you take at least a few months off of formal lessons before you jump into doing lessons at home. And if you're COVID schooling, 
Keep in mind, all of this distance learning is not normal. <laughs> Once things start to open back up again, you will not be stuck in your home alone with your kids 24-7 all year long doing Zoom classes. Now, if you need a few more ideas or more encouragement about taking an extended Sabbath break, listen to my Coffee with Carrie podcast, Taking a Sabbath Year, or read my new book, Just Breathe and Take a Sip of Coffee, Homeschool and Step with God. I think you will enjoy them both. Okay, as a strong-willed adult who's raising a very strong-willed child, I love and hate this next question. (laughs) Keisha from Virginia asked, what do you do with a strong-willed child? It's so hard being the mom and teacher. Yes, Keisha, it certainly can be, (laughs) especially when you are a mother and teacher of a very strong-willed child. First, don't get sucked into the arguments. If you don't respond or attempt to always getting the last word, your strong-willed child will not have anyone to argue with. Say your piece, walk away, and say a prayer. If he persists, let him know that when he's ready to have a respectful conversation and you're finished with whatever you're doing right now, then you could talk. If you keep arguing, you will only go round and round with this strong-willed child, and eventually he or she will wear you down which was probably their goal in the first place. Then make expectations clear as well as the consequences. The important part is following through on the consequences, but also not being so legalistic that he or she always fails or feels like he's in constant battle mode. Pick your battles wisely. What can you live with? What can you live without? What do you absolutely need him or her to do? Give choices, but only choices you can deal with. Let's just say one of your battles is the kind of clothes your daughter wears. Give in on what she wears around the house, but give her choices on approved outfits she can wear at park day or with friends. If your strong-willed child bucks you on math every day, have a heart-to-heart and try to figure out what exactly he finds so difficult. If he wants you with him while he does every problem, compromise on the time. Tell him, once you finish 10 problems, then I will sit with you and help you with the rest. If he says he has too many problems, then try giving him only the odd problems. If he says it's too easy, well, then tell him to take the chapter test first. If it gets a 90% or higher on the chapter test, then maybe he's right. It is too easy. Let him skip the chapter and move on to the next one. Tell him you'll do 20 minutes of bookwork and then 20 minutes of math and games. If he wants to do math at night, even though school time is during the day, tell him you'll set up a two-week experiment. Let him do math at night for two weeks and compare his work, his attitude, and his progress. This is how I found out my son really does think better at night when it comes to calculations. The idea is to give him choices based on what he says is the issue. If you can live with it and it doesn't disrupt the family, then try it. When your strong-willed child is older, Let him or her help you pick out the curriculum she will be using or have him or her pick one or two topics or subjects to learn that year. If your strong-willed child feels like he or she is really being listened to, then they usually work harder on the task at hand. For a while, my son wouldn't clean his room, and it just so happens my daughter loves to clean. So after asking him to clean his room several times, my daughter volunteered to do it for him. So I let her do it. But then when she was done, I paid her with some of my son's money. He noticed, he balked a little bit, 
and then cleaned his own room the next week. But after he cleaned his room on his own, the next week, he asked to be paid too. I told him cleaning his room is a chore he's responsible for as being part of our family. His sister didn't have to clean his room. She's only responsible for her own. She went over and beyond to clean your room, so that's why I paid her with your money for work well done. Well, this got his attention, and he started asking what he could do for extra money around the house too. <laughs> also keep in mind, at a young age, being a strong-willed child is a negative character trait. However, if trained and used for the glory of God, that stubborn streak can become steadfastness, boldness, persistence, and faithfulness. Don't we want our sons to be strong in the faith and not to give in to peer pressure or be swayed in false doctrine? Every time my strong-willed son was annoyingly persistent or disrespectfully stiff-necked, I reminded myself I just needed to help him turn that strong will into steadfastness for the Lord. I would pray that God would turn his negative quality of stubbornness into the godly trait of loyalty and faithfulness to God. I prayed that he would be uncompromising and unwavering in his faith. Does your strong-willed child also speak her mind? I bet she does. Again, as a child, this is rude, disrespectful behavior. But trained to use in a godly way as a teen and an adult, it can become boldness for the Lord. You do need more patience and grace when parenting a strong-willed child. But no God knitted that child the way he or she is. We have the privilege of teaching him or her to become godly young men and women. Our last question comes from Kara in California. I saved it for last because it was one of the only non-homeschooling questions I received, and it's such an important one. Kara asks, are you afraid for this generation and for our world? How do you prepare your children to live in a world that is so upside down? Well, as I was reading Kara's question, I knew this is how many of us are feeling right now. What a year it's been. And if you're a 30-something mom or a 40-plus mama, <laughs> you've seen the crazy changes in our world and in our nation just in the past decade. Well, Kara, I have said this before, and I will continue to say it. I think we're raising an important generation. Actually, I think we're raising the generation. The generation of believers who will face the worst kinds of persecution. The generation of believers who will have to stand firm in their faith even under the threat of death. The generation that will bring more people to Christ than in previous times in history. The generation that will have to fight for our freedoms as believers. Am I afraid? Well, as a mom, I hate the idea of my children ever being in danger. But no, I'm not afraid. I've read the book. I know who wins the battles. But I also know who gets the ultimate victory. I know how this story ends, and we are the victors. Our children, if they're believers in Christ, will be the victors. We're living in a time like Noah, like the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the time like the book of Judges. We're living in a time where people are doing what is evil in the Lord's sight. All of the people are doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. A time where they're exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. The world is calling evil good and good evil. God's word tells us, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So yes, Kara, the lies and indoctrination are everywhere. 
I truly believe the homeschooling phenomenon, its popularity, and the mass exodus to home educate is actually God's way to protect this generation. He's calling them home so that we can bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, so that we can build a solid foundation of truth built on God's word. How do we prepare them to live in this crazy, mixed up, lost and ungodly world? How do we train them to fight the good fight and to do God's kingdom work? Well, we diligently and consistently teach them God's truth. We share God's word with them on a daily basis. We get them so used to the truth that they recognize false doctrines, false ideologies, and false teachers when they hear and see them. We share with them our testimonies and our faults, God's faithfulness, and God's mercy towards us and to those we love, so that they see and believe that our God is for us, that God loves us, and that God will protect and provide for us even in the hard times. And we pray for them and with them. We show them God's love in our actions and our forgiveness for others. We share God's word so much that they not only know what God loves, but that they love those things too. And the same goes in the opposite direction. We pray that they will love what God loves and hate what God hates. And then we trust the Holy Spirit to do the rest. This generation has a heart for the unborn, for the oppressed, for God's world and its creation. This generation also has a heart for justice and for mercy, but they know the difference between the two. We need to make sure they have a heart for the lost, but also have a heart for God's ways. And yes, I do think we need to share with, share with them the prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel and the major and minor prophets and revelations with them. How can you fight an enemy you don't even know exists? How can you fight a battle you don't even know is coming? Besides, God in his grace and mercy have given us the playbook. We know the enemy's tactics, plans, and ultimate endgame. God even gave us a timetable and things to look for. Jesus said, when you see these things, know that the time is near. The time of God's wrath is upon the earth. We're seeing Bible prophecies unfold before our very eyes every night on the news. Ever since Israel became a nation again, the prophetic clock started ticking. I do believe it will only get worse before it gets better, but that's because Jesus said it would. However, I do believe God has provided a way out for his believing church, and I do believe he's raising up a generation for such a time as these. Mamas, we have the privilege to teach and nurture this generation. And through our sons and daughters, we have an opportunity to teach and reach our grandkids. And if the Lord doesn't come soon, our great-grandkids. We know from God's word that there will be great deception in the last days and that many will fall away. I truly believe we're raising the generation that have taught the word of God. They will not be the ones deceived, but they will be the ones who will reach the lost before it's too late. So yes, Kara, I'm a bit nervous and scared for my son and for my daughter. But I also know God is raising up in your children and in my children a generation of Micahs, Daniels, Deborahs, and Pauls. So, as the world continues to turn upside down and to preach lies that contradict God's word, continue to keep the compass facing true north. Keep your child's world, his worldview, his perspectives, and his truths from turning upside down too. I'm praying for you and for our children. To God be the glory. One of the best parts of homeschooling is hanging out with other homeschooling moms. 
I can't tell you how many times I have gone to a park day with a heavy heart or while in the middle of a self-induced pity party. And then after sharing my awful week with the moms, I would be bombarded with suggestions, insights, advice, tons of encouragement and prayer. We're all homeschooling experts and we all have a story to share. You never know how your experiences, your struggles, your challenges, and your triumphs can be used to bless others. So keep asking questions, keep helping each other, and keep it real, mamas. Thank you for hanging out with us and for joining me for this little coffee break. If this is your first time joining us, you can find us at our website, coffeewithcarry.org. We also have daily devotions and homeschooling tips at our Instagram account, coffeewithcarryconsultant. And don't forget to check out my new book, Just Breathe and Take a Sip of Coffee, Homeschool and Step with God. If you heard something you liked, then share our podcast with a friend who might need a little encouragement this week, or share it with a friend who's homeschooling. And if you haven't already, we would love for you to subscribe to Coffee with Carrie podcast, and then take a few minutes to leave a little review and share it with others. Thank you in advance for listening to us each week and for sharing our podcast, our book, and our homeschool mom ministry with your friends. We're so very honored and grateful. It's our prayer that our website, our homeschooling consulting services, our podcast, and our new book will help you homeschool one step at a time, one day at a time, and one cup of coffee at a time. We're praying for you. Stay healthy. God bless. And see you next time.